two and a half billion people cook their daily meals, burning mostly wood, but also dung or agricultural waste. So energy is just essential for everything we do. So when I hear this dialogue, we've got to get rid of fossil fuels. We could, you know, we're going to stop the World Bank, European Development Bank, USAID saying they don't want to fund and they're not going to support financially development of fossil fuel, you know, infrastructure in poor countries. It just boils my blood. I think of those two and a half million people and believe me, they want nothing more than a simple, clean cook stove. Our mission, and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that, when implemented, will improve our safety, our environment and how we govern our business. We are making the world safer and we're going to have fun doing it. Code Red Safety provides highly trained professionals and mission-critical services to keep workers safe and projects on schedule. Founded in the Midwest in 1995, we operate through eight branches across the United States, providing a range of safety services, including turnaround solutions, equipment rentals, standby and emergency rescue teams, safety staffing, training, and auditing and in-plant communications solutions. Learn more about our range of safety solutions which can be customized to meet your project needs at www.coderedsafety.com Applied Cryotechnologies, ACT, is a complete turnkey systems provider of technology equipment and services for the transportation, storage and distribution of liquefied hydrogen, natural gas, oxygen, argon, nitrogen and other cryogenic gases. Our core business is mobile cryogenic equipment and our niche is maximizing payload. With over 1,000 trailers manufactured since 2012, this business model has led to a vast array of trailer designs that cover almost every geographical region in North America. ACT is the preferred equipment supplier to the industrial gas industry because our innovative trailer design approach has changed the landscape regarding cryogenic distribution equipment in North America. Tomahawk Safety, a leading manufacturer in safety products ergonomically designed for superior fit, offering best-in-class protection and helping you combat the industry's toughest jobs. Tomahawk is also supporting our frontline healthcare workers by offering isolation gowns, gloves, masks and other critical PPE. For more information, please visit tomahawksafety.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mission Zero podcast. Uh, today, I'm uh, virtually connected to Mr. Chris Wright. Uh, Chris is the CEO of Liberty Oilfield Services in Denver, Colorado. They are the second largest fracking company in North America. Uh, you may have seen Mr. Wright recently in his public challenge to North Face, uh, which had refused to produce jackets for an energy company in uh, basically some form of uh, performative virtue signaling. Um, I don't want to use our time completely on that. Uh, you know, I know you've been interviewed about it ad nauseum, but can you give us a brief run on that, uh, Mr. Wright? And thank you for being here. Oh, glad to be here. Appreciate your podcast. No, I mean, the North Face for us was just an opportunity to continue to push, hopefully, a sober, thoughtful energy dialogue. And I mean, look, the, the punchline there is oil and gas are simply essential for the modern world. 
So being, you know, being a company with your products made out of oil and gas, made using oil and gas, distributed using oil and gas, and for activities only possible because of oil and gas, it's just a little bit over the line to shun oil and gas. So, we, you know, look, North Face more a symptom of the problem than the source of the problem, but they're a symptom of just how poor and off base the energy dialogue is today. So, you know, any any chance we can get to engage the public in a more thoughtful dialogue on energy, uh, we take. Awesome. Awesome. Well, great. Uh, like I told you before, I've read your uh, your new ESG report, and that's that's really what we're here to talk about today. I found it outstanding. I, I found it uh, probably the most clear and concise and informative case for fossil fuels I've ever seen. Uh, I love the details. I love how you connected it to, uh, you know, living the, the human experience and uh, how you connected it to the, the human, in, you know, poverty index and things like that. You titled it Bettering Human Lives. Uh, you spoke heavily to climate change, which is brave for an old field CEO. But you, like I said, you made the best case for fossil fuels I've seen. Now, we live in a world where debate is in sound bites. It's all emotional. Uh, it's almost exclusively lacks critical thinking. What led you and your team to believe uh, an ESG report like this needed to be needed to be done? I, I think the state of the energy dialogue, you know, the stuff you hear, we've got to be off fossil fuels in 10 years or 20 years or immediately in the climate crisis and the huge damage to humans from climate change today. You know, so much of that is said politically and even from, you know, sort of an activist wing in the investor community that our industry is bad. We're destroying the earth right now. And the sooner we, you know, shut shut down and go home, the better. You know, that's a common refrain today. So people in our industry, investors looking at us hear this stuff. I think a lot of them know it's not true but they don't feel totally armed to, to refute it. So to me, it's just like I've been speaking on this stuff for 10 or 15 years. This was, it. This was I just decided, you know, end of last year that I've got to put the effort in our team, you know, to write just the broader explanation of where the world gets energy, the just dismal state of a third of humanity still in significant energy poverty, um, no, nobody in energy poverty would disagree, but most people that read or write or politically engage, they just have no idea that most people don't have the energy they just take for granted. And of course, I, I've been speaking and engaged in the climate debate for quite some time. And um, so my goal there was just to distill it down briefly, simply, just cover the basics. Because so many people active in this, mostly from our opponents, they don't know that much about climate change. They don't seem that curious about climate change, but boy, they're passionate about the issue. So, so in any case, I'm, I'm looking forward to more feedback, but this was our attempt to just try to in-depth enough to make a serious dialogue and to give pe point people to references and the big picture data, but hopefully not too long so that no one will read it. I don't know where we came on that balance, but you know, I only put in about a third of what I wanted to, but trying to balance serious enough, enough meat, but not too long. Yes. You know, I, I, like, like I said earlier, public debate tends to be emotional and it tends to lack critical thinking. And you kind of watched both of those in this report. And that's what I really appreciate about it. Now, you mentioned uh, something a few seconds ago called energy poverty. I don't think uh, most of our 
my listeners are going to know what that is. Uh, you know, you, you show light, you show many examples of how a lack of energy directly correlates to death rates, child mortality, poverty. Uh, it's kind of an easy scenario that you present. Get clean energy and your life improves dramatically. Uh, I t- I've told people myself many times in, in life, we're just we're not recognizing how unbelievably fast the human condition has changed even in the last 50 years. Do you mind kind of defining energy poverty and, and, and how you see it in this in, in your ESG report? Sure. I, I, I talked mostly about the global problem. I think in next year's report, I'm going to talk more about that issue in the United States and in, in sort of wealthy countries, because it's not just a developing world problem. But in the report, we just kind of gave an overview of the data. And, and maybe the punchline there is about a third of humanity, two and a half billion people, cook their daily meals, burning mostly wood but also dung or agricultural waste inside their homes or huts. So, the, and look, I've traveled to 55 countries, um, a, a good bit in the third world. And what you see there is you know, very smoky huts. But to, to get to, to eat your meal, humans don't have the digestive tracts to break down straight grains. We can't just eat wheat or corn. Um, without cooking it because of the complex carbohydrate chains in them. So we have to cook those meals. And, you know, look, we have, we turn on our natural gas burner, our electric stove, and we don't think that much about it. We think about the seasoning and how we're going to make it so we love it. But for <laughs> yep. the average person, this is just a necessity. And for that third of humanity, two and a half billion people, that's not how they live. In fact, women in traditional societies spend a little more than an hour every day simply gathering fuel wood, whether that, and mostly that's wood, but it could also be dung, you know, or agricultural waste. You've got to burn something to generate heat, heat to break down those complex carbohydrates so that you and your family can get the calories we need to live. So energy is just essential for everything we do, starting with basic survival. And um, so when I hear this dialogue, we've got to get rid of fossil fuels. We, you know, we're going to stop the World Bank, the European Development Bank, um, USAID saying they don't want to fund and they're not going to support financially development of fossil fuel you know, infrastructure in poor countries. It just boils my blood. I think of those two and a half million people and believe me, they want nothing more than a simple, clean cook stove. Mo- mo- the, mo- the, the transition most people make is to liquid petroleum gas. Think of it as a cook stove, just these canisters, like a propane. LPG is mostly propane. And they hook it up to a stove. It burns cleanly, a nice little flame. You turn the knob and it turns off. Um, It's just game changing for people's lives. I want nothing more than for those two and a half billion people to be able to have simple, clean cook stoves for longer, healthier lives and get more time back in their lives to spend with their children for education or whatever is important to them. So that's a passion for me and a passion for the team at Liberty. And most people don't know about it. And we have politicians and activists actively advocating things that will slow the ability for people to get clean energy and live better lives. So the reports, that's, that's the, the energy poverty is also an issue, of course, in high income countries. I didn't cover much of this in the report. I have a little bit afterwards. 
But if you look at the price of electricity, for about a, over 100 years, we've had electricity getting cheaper and cheaper and more reliable and more reliable. So in the developed world, in our houses, we just take it for granted. But having a flip of the switch electricity, whether it's to run a washing machine or a dishwasher or turn on lights or power a refrigerator or our air conditioner, I mean, it's just essential to our lives. But we've had a, a, a changing trend these last 10 or 15 years, um, I think mostly wrongheaded. And, and now we're making electricity more expensive and less reliable. So, I mean, you know, look, for a lot of people, they can work around that. But think of Texas. I mean, 200 people died because of lack of energy in a cold snap this February. And in California, this is and, and I, I fear Texas has got to be wiser about understanding robustness of the electricity grid is just central to human lives. And California, where I lived for a long time, has just gone that direction as well. They just keep making electricity more expensive and less reliable. And one of the achievements of that is California has the highest adjusted poverty rate of any state in the nation. Think of that. Think of the enormous embarrassment of riches in California, and they've created the highest adjusted poverty rate in the nation. One thing you cited was the uh, the UN Human Development Index, and I'm not really asking a question here, but just I'd like to point it out. Uh, in 1990, 62% of the world scored low as a category in the uh, in the Human Development Index. Now it's 12%. That's almost, and as you cite, directly in line with access to clean energy. Yes. I mean, look at the human development index is three components. It's life expectancy at birth, per capita income, and years of education. Just sort of broad metrics of, you know, obviously how long you're going to live when your child is born is a pretty massively important metric. A per capita income is sort of, you know, your ability to have a quality diet, to have leisure time, to be able to travel, to get education. And then an output of education. How many years of education does the average person get? Those are, of course, critically important things. And as we show in the report, the rise in human development index only happens with an increase in energy consumption. There is no route out of poverty except increased energy consumption. So reliable, affordable, um, and clean energy are just essential for rising human life, quality of life. Um, so traditional fuels and we think of fossil fuels as dirty but of course they're not dirty at all they're massively cleaner than what they've replaced in traditional societies Um, and people say well you must not like coal because it's dirty and my answer to that is compared to what you know in a wealthy country like the united states where we have natural gas cost competitive in fact in most cases cheaper than coal for producing electricity well, hey, we don't impact the cost. We do. Natural gas is cleaner than coal, no doubt. But coal, and particularly coal-based electricity, is massively cleaner than burning wood, dung, and agricultural waste. Um, and a coal-burning power plant with scrubbers on it, where they re- reduce the particulate matter and socks and mercury pollution from coal, you can have quite clean electricity from coal. It does emit significant greenhouse gases, as, as combustion of all hydrocarbons do, all biologic matter does. Um, but there's trade-offs with that. You know, mm-hmm. the world is gradually warming. There's some economic impacts down the road for that. 
It's a real issue. We should be aware and we should talk about it. But it's just nowhere near the magnitude and urgency of the problem of people living without affordable, reliable energy. See, you said a key word there, and, and which is what I was going to get to. You actually said a couple things where, where I wanted to transition into, but you said uh, trade-off. And that's one thing. I, I mean, to me, that's the largest gap in the public discourse on climate, climate change and the economics of it and whatever else category of it you want to talk about. But, you know, you look at one fact in your in your report, two and a half million people die each year from indoor air pollution, which is more than malaria, tuberculosis and HIV combined. So there is a significant trade off to saying, OK, well, let's do away with all fossil fuels and you address it clearly and concise and people need to to look at that side of the equation as well. And, and I really appreciate that point being made in such a, you know, clear way, like I said. Um, but uh, you also spoke about something called particulate matter, um, you know, that which is, you know, in, in the idea of climate change, basically, I think all most people here is carbon dioxide in the air, heating, oceans rising, end of discussion. That's, that's, as, that's as much depth as they go on it. So you go into details about particulate matter. Can you define that and, uh, and, and I guess, explain how over time it's going to be reduced or how you think it's going to be reduced? Yeah, so particulate matter, just as the word says, it's basically small particles that, you know, it's when you're, you're burning that romantic fire in your fireplace or when you're out camping, there's that smoke that rises from that fire. If you have it in moderation, yeah, I mean, you try to get out of the smoke, it's romantic. But if you breathe that smoke every day, hours a day for cooking meals, it's deadly. And it isn't the dust or those big, you know, burning embers you see in the air that are the real danger. The real killer is particulate matter PM 2.5, meaning less than 2.5 microns. You can't see it, but it's very small dust. It's very small par particles from burning you know, wood, from burning coal without clean equipment on it, from forest fires, people that clean, you know, clear land by burning fires and grasses, as again, as very common in traditional societies, this creates a lot of particulate matter. There's natural particulate matter. Winds blowing in the desert blows very small dust that you don't see. That's dangerous too. So some particulate matter is created naturally. Some of it's created by humes, by humans. But indoor particulate matter from burning traditional solid biofuels, that's what kills somewhere between two and three million people every year. It's simply because they don't have access to energy and clean cooking fuels like we do. I mean, I could go on. That's just one particular uh, cost of energy poverty. Obviously, if you don't have energy, you don't have reliable lights, education suffers worth health care. How are you going to keep medicines cool if you don't have access to electricity? Think of vaccine distribution to villages that don't have electricity and don't have clean burning fuels. Think of water distribution. Just lack of access to clean water also kills millions of people a year. A simplest solution there is just simply a water pump. But if you don't have propane or electricity, you're not going to be able to power a water pump to get groundwater up. And, you know, and, and, provide clean water to your village. So instead, you walk hours to streams or creeks or ponds, often less safe, more dangerous water. That kills millions of people a year. Why I'm rolling, Jeff, 
The other thing people don't realize, if you removed fossil fuels today, just from two areas of food production, so this is a very conservative estimate, if you just got rid of nitrogen fertilizers um, and pesticides, fertilizers, the most important one being just nitrogen, urea, you know, we use natural gas um, to produce ammonia, which is the critical source of nitrogen for agriculture. This changed the game. This is a technology a little over 100 years old. If you removed that, well, all fertilizers that are produced with fossil fuels and pesticides, if you got rid of them tomorrow, next season, agricultural production would drop 60%, 60%. That's not counting transport of food distribution, refrigeration to protect things from spoilage. I mean, we literally couldn't come close to feeding the planet without fossil fuels, without oil and natural gas. And just, you know, kids don't learn this. People don't know that, you know, food just comes from the grocery store. So to me, we can come back to climate change. It's a real issue. And as you said, we should have a thoughtful dialogue about it. But that's not people are learning. They're, and and, and my, my frustration is everything we talk about in life, we're going to go on vacation next week. Well, that costs us some money. It takes us away from our friends and away from our work. There's some downsides, but we're going to see some great sights. And maybe I get some one-on-one time with my wife or with my wife and kids. So we always discuss issues with trade-offs. When people talk about climate change, they don't talk about trade-offs. They just say, we must decarbonize by 2050 or 2030 or the world's going to end. You know, that's just an unintellectual, it's just sort of a it's, it's, thoughtless dialogue. And that leads to bad things. Yeah, it's just lack of critical thinking, emotion, emotionally driven people, uh, and that's it. They don't, they don't, they don't see anything for, for the facts and, and how it actually affects real world. There's no pragmatism involved in it at all. Uh, one thing I wanted to tell you too: you mentioned the water. Uh, half, you know, half of all deaths can be, and this is not in your report. This is just something I know. Half of all deaths can be contributed to, in some way, to lack of clean water. Uh, you know who told me who I heard say that? Hans Rosling. I was going to guess the, the author of Factfulness. Yep, which we do I talk saw about him speak. I saw him speak in Europe about eight years ago, and I remember that him saying that exact fact. I can't believe I, I was so you know tickled when I saw you that you mentioned him in your book. But I was like, my goodness, that's the guy that I've cited to so many people on on on. All things of uh, you know about the about the globe before, and, and you put him in your ESG report. I just thought that was, I thought that was pretty funny. But uh, yeah, the one thing also too I wanted to point out in your book, and I'm not or in your ESG report. I'm not going to get too much into it now. But man, I really love the uh, the this example of the island of Hispanola, and that's where you know the island where shared by the Dominican Republic and. Uh, and uh, Haiti, and it, it, it's a good example of how more or less fossil fuels doesn't necessarily mean greener. Uh, the Dominican side has much better um, or much higher use of fossil fuel uses, but their island is uh, is healthier. It's it's more it's pollution is better and it's greener. So uh, you know that was just an important part. Uh, I do want you to get a little more in depth about climate change. Uh, because, like I said, even even myself, uh, you know, learned so much out of this ESG report about CO two emissions. Uh, you talk, you, you go into depth about 
okay, you know, one thing that's not addressed is how we're coming out of the little ice age and, and how things are long-term and things are somewhat short-term. You do address the fact that that temperature is actually rising. You address the fact that um, that the oceans are actually rising, but not in an increasing amount. Uh, you know, you, you address the fact that uh, temperature is rising, but not in a not as drastically as we think, and and how we're, and how things will change. Can you uh, give a just a um, you know? And I know it's a very broad question to ask you, but uh, you know your synopsis on CO two emissions, how they are affecting the world, and how that's going to uh, play out in the future with advanced technology, increased use of natural gas, et cetera. Yeah. So the, the goal of the report was just to give the basics of climate change and not the basics like my opinions, but the basic facts and the basic data that I think people should be somewhat familiar with. So we covered, you know, what's the chemistry and the physics and it's just, yeah, combustion of a hydrocarbon. We show methane is the simple example produces you're combining methane with oxygen um, and coming out of that is water vapor and CO2. So it's that, yeah, that the white clouds we see above power plants and all that, they usually point to it as something evil. That's just water vapor. Uh, CO2 is odorless and transparent, so you don't see it. But we've increased atmospheric CO2 by coming up on 50%, you know, since the start of the Industrial Revolution, most of it in the last 70 years. So I show that data. And also show that data in context. Mm. You know, if we had instead reduced CO2 in the atmosphere by 50%, um, photosynthesis would be impossible. And we truly would have a climate crisis. In fact, and we're, we're engineers and humans are, are, uh, humans are genius. And we'd be doing everything possible to elevate CO2s in the atmosphere. But that would be a massive crisis. Instead, we've raised it by 50%. In, in life on land times, it's still relatively low atmospheric CO2, but we've raised it, and that absorbs this infrared radiation, which is how our planet cools itself. It gets heat from the sun, but that heat coming in has to always be balanced by heat going out, or the temperature of the planet changes. So there's always some kind of a balance there, and by putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, we're raising the temperature at which this balance will, 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 will uh, be found. And so, you know, the, the fundamental thing is real. The basic chemistry and physics says we're probably going to raise the temperature of the Earth by a degree and a half, maybe two degrees with a doubling of CO2 that we'll get to by the end of this century. Um, it's actually relatively modest amount of warming. And the economic analysis of it shows it's economically almost not noticeable because um, there, there's some positives and there's some minuses. You know, the biggest positive, and I think we show this in the report, is just the planet is getting greener. We've mm -hmm. had relatively low atmospheric CO2 that's risen up a bit. That allows trees and grasses and agricultural crops. They just simply grow faster with more CO2 in the atmosphere. So the planet's slowly greening. Um, yeah. as, you, as the planet warms, the oceans expand. So it does, it, it certainly is a driver of sea level rise. And, and melting, you know, or shrinking the permanent ice stored in the, in the, in the, you know, mostly in Greenland and Antarctica. There hasn't been much detectable motion there. In, in gallons, it's a big number, but they're, they are slowly melting at, at a slow rate. The biggest rise in sea level is just the expansion of the oceans. Um, and and, and as, as you mentioned, the, there's natural cycles to climate as well. 
And we were in a relatively cold period for a few hundred years. And then in the late 1800s, the planet started to warm, most likely naturally. We didn't have meaningful combustion of fossil fuels then. And now humans, uh, with as particularly after World War II, as economic development spread outside of a small number of wealthier countries, it spread to the world, we've increased CO2 meaningfully. And there's no doubt that's adding to an already occurring natural warming. We don't know how much the planet will warm over the next century. I showed the data of, of the warming rate the last 40 years, which is relatively flat, somewhere between 0.15 and 0.2 degrees C per decade. Um, that, you know, that, that warming could increase, that warming could slow, but it's not alarmingly rising. Everyone thinks things are happening faster and faster. Same thing with sea level rise. Sea level rise started, the, the modern, very recent sea level rise started the middle of the 1800s somewhere. We were, you know, rising at maybe a little less than an inch a decade before recent data were probably rising a little bit more than an inch a decade in sea level rise. So real, significant, but relatively slow. I mean, that the 60 percent of the people in Holland live below sea level, and that's medieval technology. They can build barriers to the sea. So in a modern world of sea level continued to rise at this thing, would it have large impacts? It, it, it likely wouldn't. We could engineer around it and deal with it as we have been for the last 150 years. I'm probably getting too, too into the weeds in climate change. But the biggest things I wanted to put out there was that the basic numbers there and then talk about extreme weather. Because when I talk to kids and at schools these days, the biggest thing kids are worried about is super storms and more volcanoes, more hurricanes and tornadoes and violent floods and droughts. You know, this people have nightmares and kids are worried about this stuff. So one of the key things there was just to lay out the extreme weather data, which among climate scientists is well known. But shockingly, there hasn't been any increase in extreme weather that we can detect across the planet through the hundred some years we've got data. There's bad years and, 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 and worse. I mean, bad years and quiet years. It's cyclical, but we don't see increasing trends in those, despite what the media and the politicians say. And in fact, and maybe the most important piece of data in there is how many people every year die from extreme weather. A century ago, that was, a, that was almost a half a million people a year died from extreme weather. Today, that's declined, you know, something like 95% to somewhere around 25,000 people a year. And last year, I think, was the record low ever of like 8,000. So it isn't that extreme weather is going away. It's just that an energized, wealthier society, we're just much more resilient to it. And most of the remaining deaths, they're in poor, energy-deprived countries. So human, the threat from extreme weather and extreme climate has actually just dropped dramatically over the last century. But yet kids and the public are being made increasingly fearful of it. So that that's, again, that's not based on number or whatever. That's really based on, well... I don't know exactly what it's based on. Certainly for politicians, it's more political power. For people, maybe they find meaning in this cause to save the planet. But, uh, but in the name of saving the planet, we're not making very good trade-offs. And, you know, that's, you know, the things you just said, I put in my notes. Before, and before we move past climate change, just a few facts you did have in there that's uh, wi widely misinformed in the public. Tropical storms are not increasing, probably decreasing. Tornadoes almost certainly have decreased recently. Global drought is slightly decreasing globally. 
deforestation in the United States and advanced countries are rapidly decreasing. And like you said, global depths in 1920, somewhere around half a million. Uh, last year, somewhere between 10 and 20 or 10 and 20,000. So unbelievable misinformation out there. That is some really great information and, and corrects the record for a lot of people. Now, on uh, the liberty itself, and, and uh, you know, no long, you don't have to go into details about these things, but uh, liberty itself and proving its own environmental performance, um, a couple of, uh, you know, key things I saw there, Digifrac, uh, Quiet Fleet, uh, which I think most people outside of the oil industry don't understand the noise pollution of it. Uh, so I like that. Um, uh, the sand, you um, can sand that you had in there and how uh, your usage of water. Could you just uh, briefly go through how Liberty itself has improved its own environmental performance? Yeah, think of that out. Think of people in the oil and gas industry. You know, tons of people grew up in rural areas, tons of outdoor sports enthusiasts and adventurists. Uh, look, I'm a longtime board member of an environmental group. You know, I, I don't know an industry more focused on wanting to do things better than we did them before. How do we shrink our impacts on the environment, on neighbors, on our workers on location? So that's, you know, there's an increasing focus on our industry, which I'm totally fine with. But that's not a new thing. Our industry is always striven to how do we get better? Yeah, so Liberty, look, the development of oil and gas in Colorado is right near towns and neighborhoods. So we did a two-year engineering effort. How can we make a frack fleet, which is the power of a 747 jet engine? So, of course, it makes noise. But a two-year effort, we made it so those frack fleets are so quiet that 500 feet away, the closest you can live, you can permit a new well to an occupied structure. It's into ambient noise levels. And, of course, for people working on location, it's much lower stress. OSHA says you don't need hearing protection on a Liberty Quiet Fleet location. We still use it because that's the radios for communication. But, you know, that's just a thing we've done. And all, all new fleets we build are quiet. So we have a good, a great number of these fleets. And, and uh, you know, look, when you unload and load sand, there's loud pneumatic blowers that create a whole bunch of dust and noise. I, I was turned off at, uh, at that when I got into frack operations and starting Liberty. We're like, we're just, just going to fix that problem. And, it, of course, it's pretty easy to fix just instead of you know, having sand in an open truck and then blowing it into storage on site, just keep it in sealed containers. Use a forklift and plop it off. You get rid of the noise. You get rid of the dust. Um, OSHA regulations on silica on location, I think, are going to drive the whole industry towards that direction anyway. But, yeah, Liberty was an early mover. We've been doing that for seven years. Um, we're, of course, developing chemistry so we can frack with recycled produced water, or deep underground brine water, not fresh water that's used for farming or, or human consumption. So in any case, look, Liberty's a bunch of passionate people that want to make the world a better place, in, fa in fact, that want to better human lives, hence the name of the report. Um, so both we're proud of our broader industry and how it betters human lives, and we're very proud about Liberty's efforts to how can we be better next year than we were this year. Um, and then that, look, to me, two things created the modern world, the arrival of fossil fuels or the harnessing of fossil fuels and the growth of human liberty, which on mm. an economic basis really only started less than two centuries ago. But if you empower people and you have bottom-up social organization instead of top-down control, 
you know, you, you create a fabulous modern world where people can live longer, more peaceful, healthier, and more opportunity-rich lives. So I'm thrilled to be born today and not two centuries ago. Um, and we just want to spread that, that luck, that liberty to pursue your dreams as widely as we can. That's, that's the mission and the, and the dream at Liberty. And one last question for you before I let you go. I know we're running out of, uh, up here on time limit here, but uh, it's fu- funny you mentioned that too. It's something I use and, you know, I, I like to uh, use in discussion as well is, you know, you kind of brought up what's, what is the Scottish enlightenment, right? And the, the idea of owning your own labor and how new of an idea that is relative to human history. So <laughs> that's not very old. So life is incredibly better than it was 200, 250 years ago. And it's incredibly better than it was. 50 years ago uh, because of the two things that you mentioned. Uh, Lastly, uh, safety. Um, uh, One thing that stands out in the report is the total recordable uh, incident rate, uh, which is something we, you know, in safety industry is used a lot. Uh, Yours is uh, 0.66. Industry average is 0.80. Extremely good. That's a really good shining point. Uh, Just to broadly, how is... What are what is Liberty doing to achieve that? So I would say culture, you know, and, and there the focus is more on safety than on that statistic you reference. But mm. that the statistics matters. But we view our company, we have lower turnover. So we view our company as a family and that team of folks that are working on location every day around high pressure iron. Um we want to bring everybody home at the end of the day as healthy as they were when they arrived at the start of the day. So it's really a culture of everyone looking out for everyone and everyone figuring out ways. Like I, I mentioned high pressure iron. Well, we're, we're not going to have high pressure iron on a Liberty location a year or two in the future. There'll be no more high pressure iron on the Liberty location, you know, with just high pressure hoses and, and just safer constructs for moving thing around. So it's a combination of technology and systems we use, and most importantly, culture, and just cultivating an attitude that everyone out there needs to be worried about the safety of everyone else out there. And let's figure out together as a team to just keep driving down those risks, leading to the same thing, longer, safer, healthier, better lives. Everybody out there has got a family um, at home or, or, or wherever they came from. And, um, so, yes, and I appreciate your work in this area, Jeff. I know you've been very passionate about safety um, industry-wide in this thing and, uh, and been an advocate for – I remember we put in our annual report two years ago, you know, our industry as a whole is safer than the florist industry or books or bookstores. Um, and obviously, we're around more dangerous things, but maybe because of that, we compensate by just being hyper-focused on how can we do things better? How can we double check? How can we be more careful? We are far from perfect, but I think uh, you'll see a continued record of improving safety performance at Liberty. And I suspect across our whole industry going forward. And uh, I certainly celebrate that along with you. All right. Well, thank you, sir, very much. Uh, Bettering Human Lives is the title of the ESG report. Um, You can find that on uh, libertyfrac.com. Uh, I highly encourage anyone on both sides of this issue to pl- please use this information to better yourselves and to educate yourself better on it. Uh, 
Mr. Wright, your, your work is uh, unrivaled. Uh, I, I greatly appreciate your time, as I know it's extremely limited, but uh, speaking to these matters is important, and uh, I thank you very, very much, and uh, keep going. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. And uh, please, please keep and do it. Please keep doing the same and take care of all the listeners as well. <laughs> all right. Have a great day, sir. Bye bye. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission. Please subscribe to the Mission Zero podcast on your preferred streaming service and be sure to give us a five star review. <laughs>